0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the IME Podcast. My name is Dominic Kilworth, athlete, personal trainer, business owner, and personal development enthusiast. I'm joined alongside with Jackson Tippett, who is also a personal trainer, influencer, and fitness model. Together, we are your host of this podcast, where with each episode, we'll bring you an inspiring message or person to help you live your best life. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Now, let's get into it.
1: What is up, guys? We are back with another episode on the IME podcast. We've got another awesome guest on board, uh, Heston Russell, a former veteran. Uh, he has his own podcast, the V A O V V O A V. He's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in terms of leadership, what he's currently doing, and his plans for the future. So, welcome aboard, Heston.
0: Hey, g'day, Jack. Thanks for having me on, mate.
1: Appreciate you coming on, man. Um, Man, you're an interesting guy. You've, you've done a lot in your life and you look like you want to do a lot more.
0: <laughs> well, I love the name of your podcast, mate, I Am Me, and I think it's just great to, you know, we all it, come from different walks of life, but more so we so come from different lived experience. And I'm just finally sort of realizing that mine's um, unique in itself, but we all have that and it's now what we do with it, eh?
1: Absolutely, man, hundred percent. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your early childhood and then growing up, and then you know how you actually got into the army? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, So I come from
0: uh, a military family. You know, I'm a fifth generation veteran, as they say. But you know, my dad was in the was in the army, and my mother's dad was in the army. He served in Korea and Vietnam, and my dad served in Afghanistan and Iraq himself. And uh, I sort of grew up around. You know, military families in the married quarters, traveled all over the country. I've ended up living most of my life up here in Brizzy, going to school up here. And then I ended up uh, going straight from school down to the Australian Defence Force Academy down in Canberra, spent three years there doing a degree and learning how to be a, an army officer and one year at RMC. And then I spent three years up in Townsville at the 2nd Battalion, deployed to East Timor as a young 22-year-old platoon commander. Uh, And then in 2010, I applied for and was successful in entering into the 2nd Commando Regiment, which is uh, Australian Special Forces unit based in Sydney. And um, I ended up getting out officially of the military in 2009 and during my time in the military, I ended up deploying to Afghanistan four times,
1: Iraq once, and that
0: trip to East Timor, like I said before.
1: Man, very, very interesting. I want to dive obviously more into the, the army side of things. Yep. Uh, I, was, I actually had a guest on that's been in the army. Um, I don't know, to start us off like, why did you want to actually get into the army? What made you want to do that? Yeah, good question.
0: So, I, it was always around me when I was growing up. Uh, a lot of the people that I looked up to when I was young as a kid, in particular, some of the other older um, guys that I socialized with in and around the other military families went on to be in the military and I just, you know, my life was filled with these people that I saw the individuals they were. I saw the passion. I saw the motivation. I saw the values that they held true and uh, I really wanted to grow up to become that. I sort of, I really did enjoy my um, childhood, especially my high school, to be honest. I was a, I was the fat kid at school. I was unpopular. I found it so hard to make friends. I, You know, really, I essentially compartmentalised that part of my um, life. It was a lot of lived experience, particularly when it comes to bullying and all that and learning just how damaging words can be. Um, But, you know, I essentially saw the military as a way for me to build myself into, you know, or take myself along the same journey that so many of those other people that I looked up to um, walked and talked and, and became. And I saw that as my sort of pathway to escape. I saw that as my pathway to adventure, to discovering myself. But also, you know, I really wanted to get into a team environment and serve and support those in that environment and also my country.
1: Yeah, I love that, man. I want to touch base on what's a typical day look like in the army? Oh, dude, it's it's so
0: varied. But like, you know, for example usually uh, a typical morning will be 7:30 in the morning uh, is group pt group physical training 7:30 to 8:30 you're all doing sort of fitness together uh, run by a physical training instructor or run by whatever and then 8:30 to 9:30 is breakfast and then 9:30 till 12:30 is you know the first part of the day which could be anything it depends what your job is but it could be anything from going to the range and shooting through to getting your equipment and going and doing some Um, tactics techniques and procedures out in the back of the bush or whatever you know then you have lunch and then you have another training block or another the second half of the day that goes to about five o'clock and then there's usually a bit of admin and you knock off and you repeat you repeat you repeat I mean and that's just a day in barracks but the best part about the military mate is just the variety you know if you're not in barracks you're out bush doing an exercise or you're deployed somewhere else in Australia doing exercise or you're getting ready to deploy overseas and It was just, you know, I spent 16 years in the military and no two days were the same, let alone any two years were the same. And uh, it's actually a really hard thing then coming from the military to regular everyday life just because you don't have that sort of variety, you don't have that same culture and cohort, you don't have that same freedom and flexibility and also that purpose that's, you know, it's a really motivating thing. You essentially are not working within an organisation that's trying to make money you're working with an organization that has a job to do and has outcomes to achieve that aren't based on finances. They're based on, you know, people and projects and things like that. So it's such a unique situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Would you say it's kind of, kind of like school (laughs) in Um, the way it's regimented? Nah, it's so much more team focused, you know, school is
0: so individual education and all that. And you might come together with class cohorts and all that, but, I mean, in particular in the military. So, I I mean, I finished school in Queensland in, uh, when I was 17 years old and you know, I was a platoon commander in charge of 30 guys by the time I was 21 and I was the youngest in the platoon. And You know, in school, how there's that real sort of psychological barrier we put up between, you know, year grades and age groups and things like that, whereas in the military, and the key thing I really do love is it's all coming down to who you are on that day and how you perform on that day and the attitude you demonstrate doing what you do. Uh, You know, you have guys who have had full professional lives before joining the military or you've got guys fresh out of school and girls and, you know, you're sort of all wearing the same uniform. You've got the same Australia patch on your arm and it always came down to what you did on that day. Uh, There was no room to rest on how old you were, what you'd done beforehand. It really was this whole daily renewable contract piece. And again, with that variety that came along every day, it provided such a, you know, really, really unique situation I'm still yet to find outside of maybe you know a a footy team um, or you know a a sporting team there are some really key similarities there Uh, but in particular there's that physicality side but there's also a lot of that uh, you know hearts and minds side a lot of the missions and stuff we had to do in other countries working with local forces you know supporting kids at local schools all that there's the there's the physicality similarities and that um, performance focus um, you could relate to a rugby team but then there's sort of this um, you know, human human humanitarian outcome focus piece that is very unique in itself,
1: yeah. Um, I've heard like, see, I don't obviously I've never been in the army, but you hear a lot of stuff, you see stuff on the news. Uh, um, looks you know, obviously, you went over to Afghanistan, um, yeah, that seems pretty scary to me. <laughs> um, what, yeah, what like was the scariest thing? Have you ever seen any gruesome stuff? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, raw. yeah. Um, no, you're
0: right. I mean, it's not, it's, so the whole thing with deploying overseas, particularly deploying to combat, so Afghanistan, you know, it was a, it was a combat war zone, is actually the the pinnacle of most people's career because essentially it's, it's the game, it's the grand final you spend all your career playing for, and um, particularly with a whole team. So, you know, you actually get a lot of military men and women who, have harbour a lot of frustration if they've never actually had one of those deployments in their careers because they've trained up all this time and they never get a chance to do it um you know my dad served in the military for 20 years during the sort of peace time and then got out and got back in and uh, by the time he got back in in 2001 you know he was off to afghanistan off to iraq and i got to see that difference in him being able to achieve his lifelong goals as opposed to having that deprived so you never, it's never, it was never scary, dare I say that, because it's what you've been trained to do and you're just so happy to be there doing it with the people that you have trained up with and that you care for and for the country you're representing. Uh, I, in particular, was in such a unique period that I was always in charge of at least 30 or 40 um, guys when I went to Afghanistan. I was with the 2nd Commando Regiment, Special Forces, and I always had a platoon of 30 to 40 people and this day and age, so many people talk about resilience, you know, being how you get up uh, when you fall down. And for me, I I actually lived um, what I call proactive resilience that's provided by purpose. Uh, I had uh, a team of people that I was responsible for. And then I had outside of that a mission that I was responsible for. So my individual resilience was completely removed from, you know, anything that affected me directly, because all of my Um, focus was on supporting and achieving the mission and supporting those that I was responsible for around me. And, uh, you know, so absolutely, particularly 2012 was my um, deployment with the Special Operations Task Group to Afghanistan. And, you know, during that time, my platoon, November platoon, we, we flew 67 missions outside of the wire. We killed over 110 insurgents, captured so many more and lost one of our best, Corporal Scott Smith. And it was the it was the the pinnacle of my life because I got to do what I've been trained to do. Um, I got to watch my guys perform like the most magnificent feats of human courage, bravery, compassion, you could imagine. And, um, you know, I got to do it representing my country. So I joke, but there was not a single time on that deployment that I ever was scared or feared for my own life from, you know, flying out on all those helicopters and, some very bad landings and you know getting my pistol holster shot off my hip and unfortunately watching Scott die um, it never really hit that personal emotive level of fear it sort of provided more and more purpose but then these days I'll fly from Brisbane to Sydney on a plane mate and hit turbulence and I pray to God about 16 times before I land so it's very different again I relate that back to that proactive layers of resilience and i was so focused and aligned in mind body and spirit to the mission and the task and so well prepared and equipped and with the best team but um it's been a a very different life outside of the military and that's probably where i've had (laughs) scarier moments to be honest
1: (laughs) so uh, did you see your your mate get killed yeah so i i didn't see got scott um
0: we were doing a, a compound clearance in helmand and um
1: We'd, we'd spent oh, nearly
0: a day and a half on the ground and um, Scott was one of our special operations engineers and um, he, we, found a, we found a compound that was filled with IEDs, that's improvised explosive devices, essentially um, bombs that are made to be buried under the ground, not to be detected by metal detectors or anything like that. And um, Unfortunately, Scott was killed by one of those and I arrived on the scene a few minutes afterwards and um, was there with my guys for about the next... Two hours as we did the best we could to uh, basically recover as much of Scott as we could find um, over about a 200 meter area. All the while, as soon as a bomb goes off, the bad guys pretty much see this big plume of dust, and everyone comes out and tries to have a shot at you. So um, that was a, that was a really really unique time. Uh, it was a very um, terrible time uh, with the loss of Scott, but it was an absolutely incredible time watching. The um, level of performance, uh, both individually and collectively, of all the guys there, and then to make sure we got Scott home. and um, we also then stayed out there and completed that mission for another two days. Um, so I sort of usually give a bit of a, a, a talk on Anzac Day, but you know we talk about this Anzac spirit and watching people fight through in, in chaos and crisis and danger. and you know I got to see it there on, in October in 2012. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, war comes with all those scenes that you might see on movies and and dead bodies and, you know, particularly the loss of some of your mates is stuff that's hard to to get over. But at the same time, mate, it's filled with some of the most inspiring moments that you'll never be able to find anywhere else.
1: So you never woke up a day out in Afghanistan and was like, I could die today?
0: Nah, look, particularly me, I was... I was a part of the special forces and you know, we trained for two years before going over there on that rotation to Afghanistan. And i have i went there, um, i have been there four times. I went there four times throughout my career. And you know, you were taught to, my job was a professional planner and a professional leader. And uh, you know, you're trained and taught for years and years and years. And uh, we were good at what we did. We were well trained at what we did. We had lots of resources at our disposal. There was never really a threat in Afghanistan that we were actually, you know, going to get overrun by the enemy. There was definitely the threat of us getting injured and killed. But, um, mate, you know, when you know how good your team is and when you put in the hard work before you step off on any given day, you, you remove that uncertainty and you don't have those time for those what-ifs. For, for me, all those what-ifs came down to, you know, if something happened in the mission that was unexpected, what I'd have to do. You know, you kind of got to a place whereby, you know, if I was to step on an idea or if I was to get shot and killed, you were kind of quite comfortable with the fact that it was your time and you were doing it with the people you loved and for the for the mission and, and the job that you loved, essentially.
1: Yeah. So with all that said, like, obviously you enjoyed it. Um, you loved yeah. it. What made you um, just continue doing it?
0: Um, it, it was just a, a product of a number of things. You know, my last deployment was to Iraq in 2017. And by that time I was a major, uh, i had been promoted to a major and I was no longer directly responsible for, um, a platoon or a company at that time, which is, you know, about hundred, 150 people. Uh, I was sort of moving up and up in rank and moving more into these sort of staff officer positions. And, um, I, there wasn't that same. Motivation. There wasn't that same purpose uh, that came from you know working in and around those teams, and and also uh, I got exposed to a lot more of the the senior leadership in our military, and for those who were meant to be my boss when I went back to Australia, and also a lot of the decision making that was happening back in Australia. Uh, For instance, during that time in Iraq, I was working within the U.S. Special Forces group. I was preparing briefs for the new president Donald Trump, who was coming over. I was linking in with Um, the embassy doing some very big um, conversations and planning for what we're going to do with the place after we'd beaten ISIS or ISIL. And, uh, you know, then back in Australia, we are worrying about such small little things like, what if the media saw us doing this? And it was just really petty, petulant stuff. And I just really started to realise how sort of small we were in a very big pond and then at the same time, mate, to be transparent personally, um, I, at that deployment time in my deployment to Iraq, actually had a, a secret boyfriend um, back in the US. I sort of was uncomfortable with my sexuality and everything else that was going on there, just given the sort of hyper-alpha male, sort of masculine environment that is special forces. And um, I, for the first time in my life, appreciated FOMO, the fear of missing out. And, you know, when you're sort of sitting there a bit, disenchanted with the mission and the purpose um, given the people and leadership you're working with. And then at the same time, you sort of found something that finally allows you to feel love, which I hadn't sort of felt at a personal relationship level. Um, I sort of got back, took a whole bunch of leave um, nearly a year's worth of leave and went and sort of lived with my partner in the U S and during that time, the sort of pendulum swung from mission and military focus to, personal relationship and love focus. And I made that decision to make that transition after it was about
1: 2019, yeah. And you're still doing that now or?
0: <laughs> no, we broke up at the start of COVID. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was uh, a live and, live and learn. This you know, I'm 35 years old now and the, the number one thing that I've been the least experienced in is relationships, but the last two years has been such a huge learning curve for myself. And, um, yeah, he's back in the U S and I'm here with my little sausage dog in Brizzy. Um, and to be honest, I'm probably the happiest I've been in a long time because I've finally sort of figured myself out outside of purpose, outside of a mission and outside of having a team to provide me with that resilience.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I know you're huge on leadership. So do you want to give us your opinion? Like what leadership's a big word? What, what's your take on leadership?
0: Yeah, well, look, you know, I went through the military system where we you're professionally trained and taught on on leadership. And to break it down quite simply, you know, there's, there's, there's a person who is a leader. And being a leader requires three elements. It requires the authority, you know, essentially the legal authority to uh, make decisions and be in that position. But that legal authority is actually a responsibility to seek and accept risk and additional responsibility. And then there's um, management, the way in which you manage, you know, resources which can include people. But then there's actually leadership. Now, leadership is an art form. Now, leadership is basically how you understand, how you're able to link the people you're responsible for with the purpose or the mission that you're uh, responsible to do. And leadership comes in the form of motivating people through inspiration. Uh, many leaders, you have a look around at the moment, um, rely. The worst, the worst leaders are those who rely on authority. Authority uh, is essentially relying on the stick, relying on motivating people through fear. And the worst thing about motivating people through fear is that uh, it will eventually come down to the day where they fear something greater than uh, you and your authority and the stick you hold. Um, you know, plenty of leaders can manage people around, you know, move around the cards and be good at uh, being efficient and helping people out, but you would know it yourself. And those listening would know, you know, when you come across someone or something that truly inspires you, that makes you want to do something because it needs to be done. And because you take on that personal ownership, um, that personal responsibility for it to be done. That's, that's the role of a leader. The role of a leader is to unite people with purpose and the best leaders demonstrate that through leadership and they understand their values, what people hold intrinsically valuable to themselves And are able to complement those in achieving that mission and make sure each individual feels value and understands the purpose of why they're doing that and is there and supports them. And if the mission fails, they take that responsibility on themselves. And if the mission succeeds, they make sure that everyone who had a part of that mission um, achieves and feels part of that value. So leadership for me, uh, again, throughout the military, you take it so for granted because it's it's trained every year. You know, before promotion, you go away and do course and you come back and particularly the last two and a bit years out of the military and looking around and really seeing lots of leaders but not many with leadership, it's sort of been quite affronting to me personally and professionally and sort of a large a large part of that just comes down to um, a lot of the different values that I believe we hold in society today as opposed to what I saw in the military, you know, in in the army, it's all about service. It's all about putting others before yourself, putting the mission, putting the team before yourself. Out here, mate, um, or at least the, <laughs> in most capital cities in Australia, it comes down to being selfish. It comes about, you know, dog eat dog and all this good stuff, um, you know, as opposed to being responsible for things. Um, it comes down to being entitled, you know, what you deserve, what I deserve. These are the sort of languages and the sort of, themes and conversations I see and that's been a lot to sort of wrap my head around and um, a lot of it comes down to in my opinion just this authenticity and, and vulnerability and as I said to you before leading into this this podcast I have been a professionally trained and tested leader for you know my 16 years in the military but it's only been in the last two and a half years going through a relationship breakdown, facing so many of my insecurities, appreciating that I actually don't need to be responsible for people to still be able to lead myself and demonstrate leadership, that I've actually been able to (laughs) finally be the best version of me that actually is no longer comparing myself to others, is no longer wondering what people think and focusing on what needs to be done and doing it the right way and leading by example because the very best form of leadership is simply leading by example and doing it for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, I love that. You mentioned that you're, like, besides now, what you're currently doing is a little bit of charity work. Yeah. uh, Charity work, um, as obviously, you know what I mean, It's I'm guessing it doesn't have an income if it's charity or does it? Yeah, no. No,
0: no, no, you're right. So uh, recently, well, sort of end of last year, mate, I sort of had my own struggle with mental health, getting out of the military and going through my spiral, which included... You know, the good old Sydney social life, drugs, partying, everything else in between. And uh, I got to a pretty low place at the end of last year where I actually sort of contemplated taking my own life. And coming from there, I reconnected with a whole bunch of my military buddies who I sort of shut out of that selfish and entitled version of me that was living its life outside of the military. And in speaking with so many of them, so many of them had themselves experienced such a mental health decline, attempted suicide, experienced suicidal ideation. And it really helped me appreciate just how bad this mental health crisis that was going on in the veteran community was and how so much of it is being labelled as um, post-traumatic stress from combat operations, but it's not. It's sort of this moral injury and this moral trauma that comes from the way in which you sort of transitioned out of the military and um, sort of left to find yourself in a society that is so far from many of those values that, hold us accountable and hold us uh, responsible and focused on service and leadership so i sort of said about um and the podcast you talked about beforehand voav that stands for voice of a veteran and i stepped that up um, essentially to provide me with a social media platform to be comfortable putting myself out there on these sort of conversations because i still had my own insecurities feeling that as opposed to being vulnerable and authentic talking about mental health and my own suicide was sort of weakness especially with the you know expectations of the special forces profile and all of this and over the course of the last year i've worked with a number of um, politicians including senator jackie Lambie, senator pauline hansen and a bunch of others to help campaign for the royal commission into defense and veteran suicide that finally got announced and commenced this year and uh, i've now set up the organization called veteran support force vsf.org.au that is a bunch of volunteers, and what we do is we proactively reach out to veterans and family members in need and just conduct community connection and conversations, make um, small projects, getting people together, advocating on current veteran issues. And uh, you know I receive uh, a disability pension from uh, the military uh, from a bunch of injuries I received and finally acknowledged on the way out. So but all the charity work is, um, it's it's me donating my time mate but it's worth it's absolute weight in gold and particularly for someone like me and so many in the veteran community who lose our way being able to give back to our community being able to reconnect with others to provide service with a purpose of supporting those who have served is one of the greatest forms of um, treatment and recovery that any of us can experience and i do experience today
1: i love that man um you know I love that you're actually doing something like that because not many people are in the same position where they would go out and do some charity work in this day and age with everything going on. Um, yeah, so credit to you, man. Um, the even more interesting thing that you want to do is, which we only, only realised before on the phone call, is you want to get into the politics. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> I prefer, is like yeah, yeah. a big I prefer, one. I prefer not to, mate, but, you know... You just want to have your say,
0: well, I think the military structure in, in itself, it, it's very hierarchical. So, you know, there's like a rank system and, you know, it actually works really, really well. And then getting that into the outside world, you know, you look at our, our politicians who are, you know, they're meant to be like the senior leaders of our country. And even the last year campaigning for this Royal Commission and all these veteran issues that continue to pop up in and around veterans' mental health as well, I just really started pulling the strings and realising that all these pedestals that I'd put all these authority figures and and departments and 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 people on uh, really were you know nowhere near the level they should be and nowhere near the level that I kept putting them on and putting myself subordinate to so a lot of this came down to you know me just simply starting to take action starting to knock on office doors at parliament house to ask politicians to vote for the royal commission and then we sort of got that with the, the weight of a lot of other people's help and then I sit here and pick apart all the, the chaos and crisis we're in at the moment, you know, the fracturing, the fractured states in our country, the, the lockdowns, the focus on, you know, COVID numbers, um, as opposed to also the the mental health crisis that so many people are, are experiencing from our kids through to our parents, through to those who own small businesses, those who are responsible for employees. Like the place is just such a hyper anxiety driven society at the moment. And all of that comes down to a lack of leadership. It comes down to lack of actual leadership. It comes down to leaders who rely on authority and who motivate through fear and don't understand how to connect with the individual values that form people to perform to their absolute best and to unite them with purpose. They focus on control and compliance. So it sort of came down to a point of, you know, I do a lot of media stuff being requested by the media. And I just can't sit on the sidelines and continue to point out all of the faults without being ready to step up and lead by example. And um, it came with a wave of public support that I finally made the decision to um, step up and to run to be a politician in the next election. But again, I just can't do it on my own. And it's not realistic to run as a single politician. You need a team to affect change. And so I did my research and They changed the rules, so you need 1,500 members to set up a new political party, and within two weeks, I had that, and we put the paperwork in three weeks ago, and by the first or second week of December uh, is the timeline it takes to get the approvals. We should have a a new party registered, and it'll be called the uh, Australian Values Party, and the plan is to you know, do what I did back in my Special Forces days, running the selection courses, to find the best candidates who are the best people Based on lived experience, based on leadership skills, management skills, based on their ability to plan together and work together as teams and take a group of people, quality over quantity, into the next election and see if we can start leading by example and making some change.
1: Yeah, I love that, man. What's the biggest things you wish to see a change in the world right now that is happening that yeah you would wish to change?
0: Well, if you want a higher performance, you need a higher purpose. And at the moment, we are spending so much of our time in a life that is far too complicated to even try and get across borders to see families and loved ones, let alone set up new businesses. I want to see um, our leaders in politics bringing the Australian public up and out to a unified purpose that is a national purpose, that is, you know, revising our constitution, revising these systems and structures that have allowed our states to build walls between each other, that has caused so many issues to our families and to get people back to enjoying our way of life, enjoying connecting as communities, getting people back to, we actually have a set of Australian values that anyone coming into Australia who wants to apply for citizenship has to abide by. And that even includes equality of opportunity, regardless of race, gender, religion, sexual preferences or anything otherwise. Whereas I know that you may, but at the moment, uh, you know, we look at people based on... Um, what they look like, or we discriminate books by their cover. You know, when I was a kid, I don't know if you were taught the same, it's like never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> and yeah. all, the, all that we do today, mate, is judge people by the way they look, as opposed to who they are and what they bring to the table and how they conduct themselves. You know, we have these conversations about consent and all this. Another thing I was taught as a kid was, you know, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Yeah, These, these are all the key messages that we're taught as kids. But the hypocrisy is when we become adults, we lose it.
1: It's such basic skills like to me and you, but no one does it. You know what I mean?
0: But because they don't see it,
1: mate. You know, you look at Canberra, you look at politicians on the TV and you
0: hear one scandal after the next. You see a bunch of people and I've done a podcast with Tony Abbott. I've done a podcast with Julia Gillard and both of them sort of told me this great insight that you don't need any qualifications to be a politician. And what's worse is once you become a politician, you spend most of your time wondering who's gonna stab you in the back. You spend most of the time trying to just get yourself elected at the new election, as opposed to, you know, focusing on what needs to be done, working together with everyone who does get elected as opposed to one party versus the next, because the Australian people have chosen that group of people to work together, to work on plans that will survive the next election. Our current system, mate, will have, you know, the Liberal Party put all these plans together And then get voted out the next election and the Labor Party will come in and do those plans. And we might start, you know, getting stepping forward in small steps, but then we're back to step one and then we're back to this. And there's no cohesion. And every three years we go through the cycle of chopping and changing plans and attacking each other and negativity and setting the worst examples for our young Australians to follow. While other countries are planning ahead in dynasties, other countries are building islands in the South China, China Sea, other countries are are literally planning ahead 10, 20, 100 years. And um, if there's one thing I strongly believe we put on this earth to do, it's to make it a better place for those who are going to come after us. And (laughs) I just can't sit here and indulge myself on our beautiful little island, knowing that we can be performing to a better standard. And now seeing those real time impacts that it's having on people and families as we've gone through this COVID crisis, which, you know, we should have pissed in, mate. You know, we're a big island here in the, the, in the Asia-Pacific region. You know, we should be crushing this, but we are failing badly.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. I love it, man. I love all that you stand for. So within the next, you know, year or so, obviously without the politics, what else is your goals or that's the main focus right now?
0: Mate, my, my main focus is just doing whatever needs to be done. Um, And a large part of that is still my work in the veteran community. The Royal Commission has just kicked off and this charity I set up, Veteran Support Force, literally has its constitution made to only last for the two years that the Royal Commission is in existence because I'm a firm believer of only building things that are fit for purpose, not fit for, you know, enduring legacy or self-promotion. So um, I've got a team I'm responsible to there and and also a whole bunch of veterans and families that's only going to grow. But in the meantime, mate, it's just doing whatever I can do to um, continue to live those values that I'm finally back on track, I'm finally back on the rails. And, um, you know, even if I don't get into politics, mate, that's definitely where I appreciate I need to be best positioned to work with and support whatever politicians are the right politicians uh, who can do what needs to be done and do it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, mate, (laughs) regardless if I get elected or not this next election, I'm hoping to be able to put together a team that I can then still work with and support them to plan, to lead, um, to communicate and connect with people and communities to achieve outcomes. Like, this is this whole thing, Uh, you know, again, the weakest leaders rely on authority. And I finally now realise that, you know, leadership doesn't need authority. It just needs action and it needs leading by example um, for a true and authentic purpose. So... Um, until there are no problems left to solve, I'm in a, sort of an expert problem solver. Um, I think I'm going to be busy, but that's pretty much going to be me, mate, until I sort of tire myself out or otherwise.
1: Yeah, sounds like you're at your hands. <laughs> I'm keen to see what happens with it all, to be honest, and keep following your journey. And um, yeah, hopefully it all goes well for you.
0: No, I appreciate it, mate. It's going to be a bit of fun along the way, and we'll have to come connect up in person along the way as well.
1: Absolutely, man. Do you just want to let everyone know where they can find out about what you're currently doing, even everything about the uh, politics and anything else you're doing?
0: For sure. Best bet is actually my own website. So, HestonRussell.com. That's Heston and Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com. Otherwise, it's sort of the same on socials. Instagram is probably my best socials, but my sort of. Website links off to all the different projects, including the Veteran Support Force and the Australian Values Party as we look to getting that registered in the next couple of months.
1: Awesome. So this is all on your IG, is it too?
0: Yeah, on my Instagram. Well, the link to my website's on my Instagram as well. But all the sort of day-to-day occurrences and new projects and updates, uh, my Instagram pretty much captures all of that. That's my primary platform. Absolutely. And that is my
1: handle is just at Heston Russell. Awesome, Heston. I appreciate you coming on, man. Um, you know, there's so many different topics we could dive off into. Um, but I just wanted to get a bit of a rough back, background on you, what you do, what your plans are. And um, yeah, I think it was awesome just to hear a bit about your day in the life.
0: For sure, man. Happy to link back in as well. If you get questions from people or you go away and have a chat, we can definitely get back on and deep dive. There's some. I'm happy to talk about anything. You know, there's nothing off limits for me anymore these days.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's been the goal with pretty much every podcast now is just get the first one out, a nice short and sharp one, and then just wait to hear the the feedback from the listeners and um, yeah. dive into something else, which I'm sure they will. Then we'll go for a segment too. Good drill. Sounds good. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening on the IME podcast. Thanks so for can happen, Jack. Boom.